Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Very excited to announce the newest podcast to the Ringer Podcast Network family. It's Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. So this pod is gambling, 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 and more gambling. Yes, I have a gambling problem, and yeah. I want to share it with you. I want to yeah. make it your problem. And it's not just football. NHL playoffs, uh, NBA playoffs, baseball, horse racing, there's boxing, UFC. When we hit- SummerSlam. Oh, all the wrestling. When we hit July, we have a, a hot dog eating contest for Nathan's. And some surprise celebrity guests. Yeah. All right. It's Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcast. And we're thinking about once a week, right? Yeah, let's do it. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, as is my colleague and co-host, Michael Buddy Boshears Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. So I've, I've got kind of an odd question to ask you. Um, okay. You know, you're a man of many media between yeah. your between Effectively Wild and your best-selling book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work with an Extremely Long Subtitle. And <laughs> yeah. I was listening to Effectively Wild and noticed that your co-host, Jeff Sullivan, sometimes introduced the podcast and thought that yeah. this has been going on as long as effectively while it's been going on. And I never introduced the podcast. And then I thought a about point. a scene from the only rules it has to work where I forget if it was you or Sam who was talking about who owns the lineup and you guys were mm. having trouble getting your manager to write the lineup the way you wanted him to, because yeah. you had framed it as we're going to offer suggestions rather than we own the lineup. Uh-huh. So did I get the only rules it has to work <laughs> with the, the podcast intro? Cause like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even saying that I want to introduce the podcast all the time. Cause in general, I'm in favor of doing less work. I'm just, you know, yeah, I, so, I just never had the, I was just never consulted and I'm not, yeah, you know, you're saying I, I pulled a power move. Yeah. You absolutely started talking. did. <laughs> all right. We can, we can share the load. How about this? We'll start with you introducing the second segment today and then we'll, we'll move from there. We'll see how that goes. Okay. Cause uh, yeah, on achievement oriented, Jason and I trade off every now and then. So only fair that we should do that. We We'll split the load. All right. And I, I nicknamed you Buddy Boshears today because the Minnesota Twins thumbed their noses at you after our discussion last week about bullpen size and eight-man bullpens oh, and how man. bullpens were getting too big. The Minnesota Twins staked a claim this weekend going with the nine-man bullpen. They did that because one of their starting pitchers, Hector Santiago, was on the bereavement list, so they had to add someone, and they added yet another reliever, Buddy Boshears years against the Kansas City Royals who can't hit against any relievers. And it's not actually the first time that this has happened. Some other teams have had nine-man bullpens for at least brief stretches of the past few years. But coming so soon after your rant, the timing was amusing. At what point does it become our moral imperative to stop talking about this on the podcast and writing articles about it and go directly to the teams? And like show up at at the twins front office or the ace front office and say, guys, like <laughs> yeah, this is I ridiculous. Mean, the plus side is that we have more relievers on our podcast than any other podcast. And so they're really making more material for us. And that's true on this episode. Also, there is a, a reliever we're going to talk to later on in the show who might not have made his big league debut if not for the era of big bullpens. So we are going to talk to two new international players. Players. The Pirates last week made Gift and Gope and Dovidas Nevaraskis the first players born.
born in South Africa or Africa as a whole. And Lithuania, in Neverauskas's case, the first big leaguers ever born in their respective countries. And so we're going to talk to them about that. And before we get to that, I know that some of you haven't heard us in a while because we were exclusive to tune in for April. So if you are just getting back into the show, you can catch up with all of our April episodes, which should be on iTunes now. And the nice thing about us having lots of unusual relievers on the show is that they're evergreen segments, those unusual. <laughs> Usual relievers are still unusual now. So I'm trying to think if we had anybody on who absolutely cratered after. Well, yeah, usually, usually so. goes the other way because we had Eric Thames on, and now he's the best hitter of all time. And you know, know. Chris Davinsky is striking yeah. out two guys in innings. So <laughs> yeah. So if you want to go back and catch up on what we did this past month, we had lots of good guests on. In addition to Davinsky and Michael Lorenzen of the Reds, we talked to Hank Azaria, Chipper Jones, Rick Ankiel, Ozzy Smith, Jeff Blum, Mitch Schwartz of the Kansas. City Chiefs, Latroy Hawkins, among others. So go back and check it out. And if you missed us, we're glad that you don't have to miss us anymore. So one more quick thing, juiced ball update. Maybe we should do this every few shows, but since April should, is yeah. almost at an end as we are recording, we're talking before Sunday's games, but it seemed like on Saturday, every team hit about 10 home runs. And as it stands now, the fewest plate appearances per home run in any full season was last season with 32.9 plate appearances per home run this season so far 32.4 so highest home run rate ever right now and home run rates rise after april so in all likelihood we are in store for even more home runs so there's your juice ball update of the week i wonder how much of this is i i know our official position is the ball is juice but i wonder if if aaron judge and uh and eric <laughs> thames are, are skewing the results a little bit and ryan zimmerman out of nowhere but. yeah mm -hmm. by the way ryan zimmerman there's a lot of talk about daniel murphy fixing him and changing his swing and all that i don't think that's really the case yeah i think I, he's just healthy yeah again. i thought he was just healthy i thought yeah, he like, He's not pulling the ball anymore. He's pulling the ball less than he was last year. I think his launch angle is up very slightly, but not so much that it would account for this. It's just, hey, Ryan Zimmerman used to be a really good hitter, and right. we all kind of forgot about that because he was going through all sorts of injuries, and now he seems to be healthy again, and he had an excellent month. So I don't yeah, know that I'm, there's that much more to it. And even then, like, you know, with his shoulder problems, there's at least pretty good circumstantial evidence that a bum shoulder is going to make you beat the ball into the ground because that's what it sure, did to yeah. Jason Hayward and what we all assume, I think at this point, it did to Bryce Harper last year, even though mm -hmm. he, for some reason, denies ever being hurt. But <laughs> right. <laughs> I wonder why that is. By I, the don't, way. I have no idea. Like, it's perfectly OK <laughs> to say, like, you know, I was playing through something. And right. It, like if he's worried about it hurting his contract down the road because he's someone who has had an injury history well, and has had trouble hurt, staying healthy. Right. I mean, it's not going to hurt your contract as much as being bad. Right. Like, <laughs> you'd think. Right. You'd think just being bad with no explanation would be even more more worrisome. Absolutely scary. More <laughs> yeah. Anyway, maybe it's something that he'll divulge if he does continue to be great. Maybe he won't be as worried about the impact on his contract a couple of years down the road. So you want to talk about the Mets? Yeah. So the good news is the Wilpons don't own the Mets anymore. The bad news is Anthony Rendon owns the Mets now <laughs> uh, after he went. Well, I actually recommend that everybody go to the ringer.com where you will find a blog post by our master of facts zach cram 
titled mm-hmm. Anthony Rendon is the only reason everyone isn't talking about Noah Syndergaard right now, which I feel like <laughs> sums it up about as well as it can be summed up. Yeah. The Nationals beat the Mets 23 to 5 on Sunday. They're in last place, which is kind of shocking because mm-hmm. like they're good when everybody's healthy. But of course, the problem is that they're very much not. Let's let's go through the the whole laundry list of injuries. So one okay. thing I like about the baseball reference redesign is that it gives you current injuries right now, except with mm-hmm. the, the Mets where you have to scroll down a really long way to get through the injuries and to the actual roster. So you've got uh, Cespedes is out with a hamstring injury until mid-May. Lucas Duda has a bomb elbow. Uh, Wilmer Flores is out. And they had this, you know, before the season I wrote that they had like seven or eight actual, you know, pretty decent major league quality pitchers, including mm-hmm. four guys who you'd start at the beginning of a playoff series. About half of them are hurt now. So Lugo has a torn UCL. Mats has a flexor tendon strain. And Noah Syndergaard just left his start against the Nationals after four outs today. Yeah. And after refusing an MRI. Only sure shit getting an MRI now. <laughs> yes, uh, he is. <laughs> like, as much as, you know, we talked to to Mitch Schwartz last week about how much can you actually trust your your employer with your medical stuff, you know, how right. where do teams and players' interests align? Like, but if you don't trust your your team doctors, if you're like refusing not even treatment, but refusing tests, that's just it's so mm-hmm. weird. I mean, the thing that's strange is, you know, Sandy Alderson will come out and say, Well, we couldn't force him into the MRI tube, which is true enough, but particularly considering how big is <laughs> that too he, he might have trouble getting in there voluntarily but i would think that if you have significant concern that there's an issue there what you can do if you are the team you do have the leverage of saying well we could put you on the disabled list if you don't want to take the mri because we think there might be something wrong with you and maybe that is the safest course i mean it it doesn't seem like there are that many other teams that would say well we think there's a problem we want to get it checked out and then the player says no thanks and then the team says all right well you're pitching maybe there's a a different course where it's just well let's give you a, a little time to recuperate from whatever we think you have before we throw you out there. Right. And it's not it's not a treatment thing. It like it's not like there are side effects to the MRI that, you know, you just spend what like 25 minutes of your time in a in a tube. I don't know why he'd be against getting scanned unless he, you know, unless he thought he was hurt and wanted to right. hide it from the team, but like yes. Come on, man. Like if you're hurt, <laughs> like it's it's April. Well, it, you know, it'll be May by the time everybody's listening to this, but like mm-hmm. there's a you got to look out for yourself for starters, but there are bigger things at stake than just missing your next start. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know if maybe he's just had so many close calls at this point that he figures, look, I throw 100, I'm never going to be 100% healthy, and he's had so many close calls. I know you've almost written a farewell yeah, I'm, not, I'm not writing another draft of that until he actually <laughs> until he actually goes under anesthesia for yeah, whatever uh, right. the big surgery is. I mean, that's the thing. He throws harder than should be humanly possible. And so he's at the top of everyone's likely to have Tommy John surgery list just because we know that velocity is a risk factor and he throws harder than anyone else. And he's had these nagging issues and scares and it hasn't turned out to be anything too terrible so far, but it seems as if he's always one start away from that. And so maybe he felt that if he got 
an MRI, it would turn up something that would make the team worried enough not to let him pitch. And he wants to pitch, but that can be bad. It can be good to curb that impulse that players have. We don't know whether he aggravated the injury that he already had in this start, but it seems highly possible, at least, that he did. But for now, as we record, they're calling it a probable let strain. I think part of it is like the Mets just haven't figured out how to game the 10 day DL the way other teams mm-hmm. seem to. But part of it is like they're making the Sixers medical staff look like the <laughs> late 2000s AC Milan medical staff to use a three sport medical staff metaphor that seven people are going to get. I am not one of them. Okay, just it works. <laughs> I'll go with it. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I mean, this does seem to be a trend with the Mets going back at least a couple of years. I'm always hesitant to pass judgment on a team's training staff or medical staff because what do I know about injuries right. in and general? And we don't know that this is the, that like their doctors or their trainers are the problem. This could just be a bunch of fluky things or it could be, I don't know, I've heard people say that one thing the Mets have been better at than pretty much anybody else is getting guys like Syndergaard and Robert Gesellman and even Harvey to a certain extent to pop up, you know, to develop the slider and the extra couple yeah, miles an hour DeGrom. on the fastball. Yeah, DeGrom mm-hmm. too. And does that pop up in velocity put extra strain on your joints? Who knows? So mm-hmm. certainly seems plausible. Yeah. I mean, when you build a team around power pitching, you're sort of signing up for a higher risk roster. And part of the problem has been the public messaging where the Mets will come out and say, it's a day-to-day issue. We're not worried about it. And then that guy will have Tommy John surgery a couple of weeks later. I mean, That happens to every team, I think, but it seems to have happened more often to the Mets than most teams. So we don't know the specifics about what is wrong with all of these players and exactly when it's wrong, but it's become a meme. I don't know whether it's a a fair one or not. Is that a meme? Would you? How do you define meme? I would say it is Mets injuries and lol Mets and all of the- Lol Mets is definitely a meme. And I think the the injuries are part of it. And can I, I'll I'll also say this, I'm going to get in trouble for this probably because our our boss is a Mets fan, but I don't feel that the Mets fan base has fully earned its fatalism. I don't think that Mets have been bad enough to justify the, I don't know how to characterize the, the Mets fan attitude when something goes wrong with the team. But this is a team that was in the World Series two years ago that made the wild card game last year, that made a World Series in 2000, made an LCS in 2006, had a few other good teams mixed in there. I know they've had some bad teams in that span too. And I know they had the whole frustration of the Wilpon Madoff payroll issues, but compared to most teams, the bets have had it pretty decent over the last 15, 20 years, right? I mean, maybe if you go by the standards of big market teams and maybe the Mets are just always being at least subconsciously measured against the Yankees or against other big market teams. And if their payroll doesn't measure up, then that makes them look worse. But compared to the typical baseball team, the Mets haven't struggled so much that I think that they have fully deserved the sort of initial reaction to bad Mets news that's like, oh, here we go again. I mean, they've had some lousy luck. They've also been good enough to begin with to surmount a lot of those setbacks. I wonder if there's something to the to the New York exceptionalism. And I think part of the frustration, I think there's a deserved frustration with the this being a big market team being run like not Milwaukee, but you know, they're they're middle yeah. of the pack in terms of payroll. But like there's there's a certain Mickey Mouse element to ownership that you wouldn't want to see out of a team from New York. Um, yes. 
And I think that frustration is is very much deserved. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's there's an expectation that, and you being a New Yorker, <laughs> you know, might not look at it this way. But like, there's an expectation to be the center of the universe that <laughs> I, the rest of us kind of find frustrating. Yeah. So, you know, on that on that perspective, I think uh, I think you're right. I mean, even as we speak, the Mets season is generally regarded as a disaster. We've got Mets fans on Ringer Slack channels, essentially declaring the season over they have the fifth best playoff odds in the national league right now no i mean you might argue that their problems are worse than that that maybe the projections aren't accounting for the injury issues or they're being too optimistic about say someone like Syndergaard. maybe that's overrating them but look they're four games under 500 as we speak they're not off to the blue jays start or the giants start it's not like most of their competition other than the nationals is blowing anyone away so they are are far from done at this point and and the way they're being talked about it's almost as if their season is over and it's been a pretty terrible start but relative to most teams again they are in pretty decent shape right they're one good week from being back in a wild card spot they're closer to second place than the Phillies are to first place yeah so take heart Mets fans at the very least you've got a beautiful underrated ballpark and the best broadcasters in the business it's not all Ioannis Cespedes hamstring injuries although it does seem like it has been a a lot lately. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll talk about this again. I'm sure we'll talk about this again if like he misses two months and Syndergaard has a torn mm-hmm. UCL and sure, then you can panic. But yeah, like, they've had a bad, they've had a pretty bad April and they're still in it. So I, mm-hmm. yeah, it's still and, early, right? And I was not thinking they were going to be a first place team anyway, just because the the Nationals are really good. I thought they were the better team, but I did think the the Mets would be a, a wild card team. Well, speaking of injuries, that Adam Eaton thing. Is- yes, that's uh, that hurts. Of the two injuries that officially became season ending over the weekend, Shelby Miller having Tommy John and Adam Eaton out with a torn ACL. I don't know which is the more devastating because you could say that the Nationals need Eaton less than the Diamondbacks need Miller, even though Eaton is probably better and the Nationals are more likely to make the playoffs. The Diamondbacks season is, I think, hinging on Miller to a greater degree than the Nationals was on Eaton. Yeah, that's a good point. That that kind of that wasn't the way I was looking at it. I was just sort of thinking that losing Eaton for five months, that's potentially a five-win swing. Yeah, between it him. And it's the difference between that and something like the Starling Marte suspension is that the whole reason the the Nationals gave up Lopez Giolito to, mm-hmm. to go get Eaton was what a disaster their center field situation was last year. And yeah. now like they fixed it and it has suddenly become very much unfixed for a very long time. And you know that would be absolutely bothersome. So mm-hmm. Yeah, baseball can be cruel. One player can be kind of the linchpin of a team's whole offseason. And then Drew Smiley's arm hurts or Adam Eaton's knee pops and all those conversations and transactions actions and work go to waste. I would panic more about the the Eaton thing just because I think the expectations aren't as high for Arizona. Like if they fall, they fall out of the race because of this then well let me put it this way this wouldn't be the reason they fall out of the race like if they fall all the way back to 81 wins because of Shelby Miller then having Shelby Miller wasn't <laughs> going to get them the ninth. yeah see Mets fans other NL East teams have serious injuries too <laughs> oh I'm gonna get in trouble yeah so <laughs> very great uh, calling out the editor-in-chief <laughs> on the podcast um one other observation about the Eaton injury injuries like that are why I never mind when a player doesn't show false hustle 
like Eaton was trying to beat out a base hit. So that's completely understandable. If you have a hit riding on running at top speed, then of course you do it. But so many times we see players sort of jogging down the line on a ball that they're not going to beat out. Maybe one in 200 times they would beat it out. But it's just not worth the trouble. I, Robinson Cano used mm-hmm. to always get criticized when he was in New York for sort of jogging down the line on routine grounders. And I did a, an article once looking at how many infield hits he conceivably could have lost because of that behavior. And it was like a few a year, maybe. And he'd also been extremely durable and not gotten hurt much to that point in his career. And maybe those things are related. Like there is nothing unusual about this Eaton play. He was running hard, but some thing he's done thousands of times in the past and he just happened to land funny on the first base bag and his knee twisted and that was that that was his season so worth going all out for a hit but you know players have a decent sense of when they have a shot to get a hit out of something and when they don't and so when a player doesn't bust it out of the box on a routine grounder I just think discretion is the better part of valor in a lot of those cases. And if you can avoid an ACL injury once every 10 seasons or something, that's more valuable than picking up two extra singles a year. You know, that, you know, knowing when to pick your battles is why I I haven't introduced the podcast since you and I started doing it together. (laughs) All right. Well, let's give you a shot then. Let's take a quick break and we will be back with Gifton Gope and then Dovidas Nevarauskas of the Pirates. And stay tuned. And after those two interviews, we will discuss which player might be the next to become the inaugural big leaguer from his country. We have some data to bring to bear, so we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing the best plays and the worst Mets injuries of the year in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It's the easiest way I know of to shop for tickets. If you get it, you can be anywhere. With just a few taps, instantly find seats, not just for sporting events. SeatGeek has concert comedy and theater tickets too. And SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. Saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats to fit your budget. Plus, like every contract of an injured Mets player, every SeatGeek purchase is fully guaranteed. All right, I'll stop making fun of the Mets. So you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Best of all, our listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get that $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code and enter the promo code RINGERMLB. That's one word. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. So we're joined now by Pirates second baseman Gifton Gope, who holds the distinction of being the first African-born and trained player to play in the major leagues, which is really something because we've had a guy over 100 years ago who was born at sea playing Mm -hmm. in the major leagues. So we want (laughs) to congratulate you on that and welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. So we'll get into your upbringing. That's, you know, obviously the the big story, but since you've gotten here, since you had that Gary Smith feature in, in Sports Illustrated, you've been plugging away in the minor leagues for nine years, which is, uh, I mean, it's a, a pretty remarkable accomplishment to stick it out that long and get to the big leagues just from that perspective. So what was the journey like after you got to the United States? 
Um, the journey was, uh, I mean, it, it had its ups and downs. I had good times throughout the season and I had bad times throughout my journey. I just had to stick with the process and keep focusing on what my dreams are and where what I'm trying to achieve in my life. And it hasn't been an easy road. It's been tough. It's been hard. I've been through some stuff and uh, eventually I prevailed through uh, with, with some patience and some guidance and uh, support and love from other people, uh, friends, family and the, and the pirates. And was there ever a point where you seriously considered packing up and going home or go, you know, going to do something else to the point where you were thinking, well, if I'm not going to be a baseball player, this is what I'm going to do with my life? Um, yeah, I had a couple couple moments. I had uh, two moments that I thought that I was going to stop playing baseball. The first one was my very first year that I was away from my you know, parents for so long or from my mom and my, my little brother for so long. And uh, they didn't really understand me and didn't make it like... They didn't make me feel comfortable. Yeah, so kind of like it just took a lot for me to stick with the process and know what I, why I'm here. So I wasn't really comfortable at first, and they didn't understand the way I was talking. They couldn't understand who I was as a person, so that kind of made it hard. And the second time was when my mom passed away. I felt like I had to stay home and uh, look after my brothers and, you know, whatever way I can help them because my mom helped me so much. And uh, she told me when I, whenever I pass away that I should, you know, look after my little brother and you should not need anything because I gave you everything that you need. And what was the biggest adjustment for you, aside from the, the cultural differences, but going into organized baseball and having professional coaches who tell you to do things a certain way, what was the, the biggest change that you had to make? I mean, the biggest change was, you know, being out here every single day. In South Africa, we practice twice a week and play a game once a week. So coming over here, practicing every single day and uh, going out there and, you know, finding that why each and every single day and finding energy to do the same thing each and every single day. I mean, it, it can get boring catching ground balls every day. It can get boring when you, you're hitting, you know, you're doing the same stuff. And, you know, so you just got to find that energy and, the, and that why for every single day, you know, just micro, micro goals just to keep you going. I imagine one difference, you know, we talk about North American baseball culture versus Latin American baseball culture versus Japanese baseball culture. Is there a South African baseball culture to speak of? And how did you find that you were approaching the game differently with a lack of, you know, formal rigidity when you started started playing against people who had been coached in the U.S. or Latin America? Um, you could, I mean, you could tell the difference between the baseball culture. I mean, South Africa, we went, we went, we would go on international tours before we would play hard till five innings. And it felt like that was like our mental capacity of the game is five innings. And the other teams would beat us in the end of the, end of the game. And uh, the experience that they had, that was just all from my international teachings of, of learning out there, uh, competing against other countries. It's like, they started at a young age and they played so much more than us that when we played against them, it was like it was it was like a dramatic experience, great difference. And uh, yeah, South Africa is just more of an amateur kind of league, and anybody can come and join. We have we have different leagues, but it's it's not strong enough to compete 
with the with the with the rest of the world a little bit. Yeah, and so when you were 17, 18, there wasn't really a, a great way for African players to get scouted and signed. So you had to go to Italy. And for the past five years, there's been the African elite camp and your younger brother was able to get signed. So how have things changed, whether in South Africa specifically or across the continent, as far as the adoption of baseball, even since the time you started playing? It's just in South Africa we're battling against three major sports, so it kind of makes it a little bit hard to, uh, you know, develop baseball and make it, you know, as big as it could be. So just that alone and the youth, and we we have to really start back on the drawing boards and you know see how we can make baseball uh, one of the big sports in South Africa. I mean, there's a lot of talent in South Africa. We have uh, a lot of athletes that we we need to, we need to tap into. So you know just finding ways in order to de- develop the sport and make it bigger than what it could be, um, it would be a, um, a major change in the country. And one of those sports is that you reference is cricket, a game that I understand absolutely nothing about, apart from like baseball involves throwing and hitting a, a round ball. So how much does that translate cricket skills to baseball skills? I mean, it translates a lot. I mean, baseball, you're facing 90 miles an hour or higher. But on a regular basis, you're facing 94. Back home, you would face 80-something, 80 85. Maybe you get one guy that throws 90. But uh, baseball was slow the game for me when I played cricket. So cricket was kind of slow, a little bit slower for me. And my hand-eye coordination that I've learned through our baseball and the way my throwing techniques that I've learned from baseball it just made it easier for me to go play cricket. And, you know, you learn so much in baseball that cricket seems slower and easier to do. And reading about your upbringing and the hardship that you and your family had to go through, I mean, it seems like getting to the major leagues and the quality of life there and the clubhouse facilities and everything. Of course, you were brought up in a a clubhouse and you've been in the minor leagues for years now, obviously. But is it something that you when you were called up this past week, was it easy for you to think back to where you started and how far you'd come or have you been? pursuing this goal for so long and it's been in your head for so long that maybe it was hard to have it hit you all of a sudden uh, yeah i i had the flashback of you know where i've come from and what i've been through in order to be where i am today and i mean the pirates are very patient with me and knowing that we don't play a lot of baseball in south africa so they're very patient and they believed in me and um they always had my back i feel like for them giving me this opportunity, I'm very, I'm very blessed that they gave me this opportunity to play in the big leagues. So I reflected back after everything that happened, and I, I took a couple moments just to thank my mom for, you know, what she'd done, and in a, in a silent treatment, speaking to her spiritually, I guess you could say, and just taking a few minutes reflecting on everything that that, that I've done and uh, playing in the big leagues. It's just um, I've known some of the guys for some, some time now, and it felt like I was I was playing with some with, with my friends out there. Mm-hmm. And have you heard anything about the reception back at home or across Africa? Do you have any sense of how big this news is there? Um, I have a sense of how big it is. Uh, my friends keep, in, uh, keep me updated on what's going on and everything like that. Um, I had that. I, I already had a couple interviews from radio stations and newspapers 
from South Africa already that I've done. The Pirates have, in addition to you and your brother, brought up Dovidas Nevarowskis from Lithuania, and they had the million dollar arm experiment. So you guys had all played together in the minor leagues, I believe. And not like growing up in India is the same as growing up in, in South Africa, but has having friends in the minor leagues who came from non-traditional baseball backgrounds made that development a little easier? Yeah, it did make it easier. I mean, I was I was roommates with Rinku Singh and, and Dinesh Patel, and we got to talk about the way we grew up, and we had this mutual way of growing up, and, and, and we developed a, a good relationship between each other because we were able to understand each other more than a normal American would understand. And I was going back and watching the, the film of your first big league hit, and it's a great moment. You know, they take the ball out of play, and I saw Anthony Rizzo turned around and said something to you when you were on first base. So I've got two questions. One, where's the ball right now, and what did Rizzo tell you? Um, the ball is in uh, Pittsburgh right now, and I shall be keeping it. They get, they're going to give it to me when, I, when we get back to Pittsburgh. To Rizzo says, uh, congrats, great achievement. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we hope to be seeing more of you on the, the big league field, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you. Take care. Hey, thank you. Okay, so we are now joined by another person who just made his major league debut and was the first player ever born in his country to do so, and that's Dovidas Nevarowskis, who made his big league debut on the 24th for the Pirates. He is a pitcher. Hi, Dovidas. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So congratulations. And we were just talking to Gift about his story and how he got to the big leagues. And in his case, it's something that came about because of where his mother worked and that exposed him to baseball. And I guess if you're going to be the first player ever born in your country to make the major leagues, there's going to have to be some unique circumstance that gets you there. So with you, it was your father, right? From what I read, he was the one who was interested in baseball and involved in baseball and, and helped you get into it. Uh, yeah, he, he got into it. He played and uh, he liked the sport and just kept doing it. And not when I was born, you know, Probably didn't have a choice to pick a sport other than baseball. Mm. And so how did he get into it? Because, I mean, you were born after Lithuania stopped being part of the USSR. But, you know, how does yeah. a guy growing up in Lithuania in, I guess, like the 60s or 70s get into baseball? Yeah, he went to college and uh, he picked it up because he went to one of those, uh, one of the sports uh, colleges here and there was baseball sports. So, you know, you start playing in and you liked it. So you just kept doing and you know baseball for the last thirty years. Just you picked it up out of college. And what were the other sports that were the the big competition for you, or or were people surprised that you were spending time playing baseball instead of some other sport? Well, it's always been basketball in Lithuania, you know, since long, I mean, a long time ago. You know, soccer was always a second. You know, every other sport is pretty much you know from top three to all the way down. So mm -hmm. you can't really beat basketball because, you know, it's like, you know, a lot of people say it's like our second religion, mm -hmm. but hopefully, you know, hopefully one day, you know, we get more maybe major leaguers from Lithuania here. So we, you know, expand our like view in Lithuania about baseball. You grow up learning a game from your dad and you eventually get into the, the showcase circuit in Europe and, you know, we've got a good idea of what it's like to grow up as a teenage baseball prospect in the U.S., the Dominican Republic or Japan. From talking to your, your teammates coming up, how is it different in Europe versus the U.S. or, or the Dominican? I mean, there's no, like, you know, European prospect. And, and plus, you play uh, European championships with your national teams. So, you know, you kind of know at that age, you know, who's good because you play them so much. 
Because, you know, the, the big thing we did at home, we, like my dad always tried to travel as much as uh, he can, like outside of Lithuania, just for experience and just to face better teams, like just to get better overall. Because, you know, in, in Lithuania, our club team never really had like, you know, good opponents to play. You know, they're not like same as us. So we always had to like, you know, go like Czech Republic, you know, in Germany and Italy, just to challenge against better countries in baseball. I mean, I was going to ask about that, too, because if you if you play college ball in the U.S. or even in some places, high school, you're going to play against future big leaguers. And so was it difficult to sort of figure out how good you were when you were playing against other Lithuanians or guys from the Czech Republic or Germany or, or otherwise throughout Europe? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, because, you know, you know, Italy has always always been bigger in uh, baseball in Europe, like Italy, you know, Spain and uh, Netherlands. They've always been better countries in baseball. So, you know, playing against those teams has always been hard because they're better than us. So, but actually, you know, it got us us better, you know, and just to see where we at at baseball too. And could you make any comparison to the best European competition you ever faced and, and how that compares to the minor league levels that you have played at? Um, I'll probably say Hell has always been strong. And, you know, in, in Germany, as I said, those three, four countries always been you know, ahead of us. But, you know, at some point we reached them and we beat them sometimes. So, like, beating them for us was really big. Because we come in from, you know, such a small country with not a lot of baseball, you know, not a lot of money in, in like, traveling and stuff. Like, you know, we don't get, like, sponsored by some big companies or something, like some Italian teams do. So it was a big win for us, you know, playing SOCs and winning the game. And I also read you were saying that there aren't really baseball fields in Lithuania. Are there literally no baseball fields and or are there like one or two? But do you find yourself like setting up bases and a backstop in the middle of a soccer field or something like that? You know, how do you get around that facilities issue? Yeah, we still don't have any baseball fields. And we try to work on it. We try to get involved city, get involved city in it. You know, we try to involve MLB to help us out and MLB Europe. You know, we're trying to every way possible. It's just, you know, it's just hard for us to get a, you know, a ground, you know, where we can build a field. We used to play the old soccer fields and, you know, set up, like you said, like set up all the bases and set up all the lines and, and, and all the, you know, nets behind the, you know, home plate. But we got pretty good. We, we have a pretty good facility for off-season indoor facility. So it's about like... Uh, cages and stuff and what we do mostly hitting and, and pitching practices mm-hmm. and your dad coached you very closely and you'd talk to him after every outing how did he learn the finer points of pitching or did his experience suit him to instruct you once you were a high level pitcher or did you find that once you got into the pirate system their coaching was very helpful well you know my my dad's like in the before side he coached me and then, you know, I was always throwing hard, but I was out of control. I didn't, you know, I was wild. And I was just so young. And then I was just, you know, my body was still growing. And I just, I didn't control a lot of stuff. And before I signed, I went to MLB Your Camp for mm-hmm. two years in a row. And there was a big league pitching coach. I mean, he was my coach up there. He was, uh, his name was Bruce Hurst. Yeah, he played in the big leagues for Red Sox for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. And he was he, he was the main pitching coach in the camp. So Lee Smith was there too, uh, another guy from a you know ex big leaguer. And those are two guys who like you know I got you know more experience about pitching. So then I got signed, and every year 
you know, I kind of keep learning about pitching and, you know, about mechanics, you know, now it's kind of easier for me, you know, to know what I'm doing wrong. What kind of off the field support did they give you? Did you get English lessons there? Did they, you know, once you got stateside, did they show you around, show you, help you adjust? Cause I mean, you were only a teenager when you came over here. Yeah. Uh, well, I never had English classes. I had them back home at school. But, uh, yeah, I spoke really, you know, a little of English when I got to first time to States. Not to States, but to uh, Pirate City. And uh, I kind of picked it up. I was, like, kind of forced to, to learn English because I was there by myself. You know, I got nobody to, you know, to talk to in my language or nobody can translate. So, I was like, I had to, as I say, I was kind of forced, you know, just to pick up, the, you know, English. But every way I was doing, uh, I watched a lot of movies in English. So I guess, you know, that helped me to, to, you know, understand better. And that's difficult. Like you said, not only being a foreigner, but being the only Lithuanian in camp, did you find a, uh, you know, every clubhouse has clicks, you know, was it easy to, to make friends, to try to, you know, get in with a group within the, the clubhouse when you came over, you're just picking up the language? It was, yeah. I mean, I found some, you know, friends there, you know, everyone was interested because you know, I came from Lithuania, you know, and we've been asking, you know, where you play, how you got, you know, here this, and it was, it was just a different thing for me because, you know, I've never been by myself somewhere like, you know, for that long. And, you know, there's English and there's Latin guys, you know, there's different cultures and just, just being there for a long time was a lot different. It was hard in the beginning for me. Is there anything that you would recommend to another team? If another team signs a player from somewhere else where he doesn't know the language that well, or he's not playing with a lot of people from wherever he's from, is there anything a team could do to make that transition easier or does it just take time? Yeah, it definitely takes time. You know, I mean, what players do, they, they have English classes for guys who, you know, you, who are like need, needs to learn English. So they're doing a good job of that, you know, getting, you know, mostly Latin players or we have guys from Taiwan, you know, taking English classes. So, you know, baseball is the game. It's a big part of communication. You just have to be able to communicate with your teammates on the field and off the field, you know. You know, especially if you're a catcher, you know, you have to know your pitchers and, you know, even even the Spanish, you know, you have to pick it up some Spanish too here, you know. There's so many guys from different countries and if you don't know something, you know, it's kind of hard. Mm-hmm. So you uh, throw hard. You, I think you topped out at 99 in your big league debut and you were throwing a slider and a curveball. Are those all things that you've picked up on your trip through the pirate system when they signed you? Did they just see that you could throw hard and that was kind of all you could do at that point? Well, I, you know, first two years in the minor leagues, I, I was a reliever because I was there only for like a short time amount of uh, the season because I was still in school back home. And mm-hmm. then 2012, they, you know, they put me as a starter. Uh, so I was a starter from 2012 till 2015, beginning of the season. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, had, I had to I had to learn changeup because I never threw changeup before. Because, you know, in Europe, if you throw 90, you pretty much, you know, you only use your fastball. You don't need any, mm-hmm. anything else. So when I was a starter, mm-hmm. I had changeup, you know, fastball and uh, curveball. And then once I got moved to the bullpen, uh, I was throwing changeups sometimes, but I never got really good with changeups. So last year, I started throwing cutter because uh, that, that's the thing. I look for sliders. Maybe it looks like sliders sometimes, but it's actually a cutter. Uh-huh. And and last year, I was trying to throw a slider, but I just couldn't do it. So, you know, I picked up the cutter. Cutter was way better for me. And then I started throwing curveball last year again. 
guys. So I got three pitches now, it's fastball, cutter, and curveball. Mm-hmm. So I guess everyone asks you the question of how you found out and how you felt, but you know, you haven't had the same long trip through the minors that Gift had, or I, I guess you have, you've been in the minors almost eight years, but you, you know, started very young. So was this something that you expected to happen this season? Did you think that this was going to be the year and what was the moment that you found out? Yeah. I mean, I was expecting, you know, get called up but not like but not only if i you know was doing well here in indianapolis yeah. and, trips. and I, but i didn't expect to get called up you know in april i was thinking yeah. maybe you know summer you know get get a shot maybe end of the season you know all the september calls thing you know it was just a surprise for me because it was so early in the season already so mm-hmm. i didn't expect to get called up that soon in the season but i was really excited you know, I was uh, having a day off in Indianapolis, you know, and just middle of the day, I get a call, you know, and you're like, you go to Pittsburgh and you're probably getting pitched today. So I was like, I was, <laughs> you know, because I, I wasn't in my room yet where I live. So I had to go mm-hmm. back, you know, I literally have like 30 minutes to do stuff and go to the airport. So it was, okay. everything happened so fast. So I didn't really have time to like, you know, get stressed. I mean, I was stressed a little bit on the plane, was thinking about it, what's going to happen and stuff. But when I got in the game, it was just before the game, it just, I didn't have time to get stressed and nervous. It happened so mm-hmm. fast. I just have to be ready. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a general minor league question, but like going into the season, do you feel like you have a good sense of where you are in the depth chart, what the Pirates' plans are are for you? Because you said this this happened sooner, and I, you know you've been up and down already. I imagine you expect to get back, but you know, do you feel like you've got a good sense of where you stand with the organization? Well, the last offseason was my free agency year, but uh, Pirates protected me and put me a forty man on the roster, so I came back. You know. With the Pirates, you know, I was I got I went to spring training with the main team, picked up some things up there, met you know guys who who's in Pittsburgh right now. So I was feeling you know that Pirates like want me and they care about me and you know they want you know they seeing a future me me and Pirates. So you know I was expecting, as I said, if I only did good you know well enough to deserve a shot in the big leagues, but I didn't expect you know that that soon. Yeah. So were you happy then that when you did get sent down again, and hopefully you'll you'll be back soon, but when you did, it was Gift taking your place, right? Taking the same roster spot. In. Yeah, Gift was taking my space, but I was a, I knew I even knew Gift before I signed. You know, we both met in the same you know MLB Europe camp. Uh-huh. You know, he got signed. He just got signed a year before me. I signed a year after him. So I met I met him before I signed with the Pirates. We both I mean, knew each other before the Pirates. And, you know, when I got signed up, he's always, you know, been in, like, ahead of me, like, level or two, you know, he's always been, you know, I was in golf course league, he was, you know, you know in the uh, New York Penn League, and he's always been, you know, ahead of level, and now last year, I met him back in AAA, you know, kind of catch up with him again. Seeing him, you know, he's my good friend, you know, off the field and on the field, and getting sent down just because he's going to get the debut was, you know, awesome. I mean, I, I wasn't mad, you know. Yeah, I know, you know, it's just a part of the, you know, game getting, you know, up and back. So well, hopefully, mm-hmm. as you said, you know, I'm going to get called back up. But like, you know, I wasn't that just going to get a shot. It was just because that was an, another amazing moment, you know, in baseball and for yeah. himself, his family, you know, and his country too, the whole continent, actually. So 
I actually stayed, you know, in Pittsburgh and watched his debut too. So it was, it was amazing. So when did this occur to you that like being a professional baseball player was a realistic dream or, you know, just because your dad was so into the game, was there, was there a moment that you doubted that this was possible if you were good enough? Uh, well, my dad saw me, you know, as a, as a pitcher body. Because when I was a kid, I was kind of small. And then I was just start, you know, growing up and start passing my, my, you know, my friends, like my same age kids, you know, I was sorry, you know, have really like lanky body, you know, long arms. I was throwing, you know, my speed kind of picked it up too. And my dad saw, you know, as a tall, lanky, you know, pitcher with long arms, you know, can, can throw hard and hopefully develop, you know, better speed. And then once I, you know, got some speed, but as I said, I was wild when I was a kid. I got start getting more attention from uh, some scouts. So and then and then I went to MLB camps, and that's where I actually you know start thinking about you know signing a contract with us, one of the teams. There was always a mechanism for you to get noticed, but no one from Lithuania had ever actually played in the big leagues before. So how much do you think that this means to people back home, to kids who might be interested in the game, seeing somebody doing it, and maybe even to to scouts here saying we should scout the Baltics or Eastern Europe because the Pirates got got a pitcher out of it. How much does being that first mean to people who might come after you? I mean, for my family, a lot. We've been big together for the old, those eight years, you know. And, you know, my friends always been asking, you know, when I came by, you know, MLB 2K show game, so I can, you know, play <laughs> with your team and play you. It's always been funny to, you know, listen. And now it's, like, realistically. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, all baseball friends, you know, I grew up with, I play with, we didn't you know, kept playing baseball, you know, we were like kind of quit, you know, went a different way, you know, to the schools and stuff. We weren't like talented enough or we just didn't want to play anymore. Kind of, you know, nice to hear, you know, that they play with me and they, I reached uh, where I wanted to be. And I uh, mm-hmm. hope it's gonna, just going to change, you know, the perspective of people up there about baseball, you know, that you can, you know, baseball is a sport too and you can play. All right. Well, we're glad that you made it. We hope to see you again in the big league sometime soon. You can find Dovidas on Twitter at Dovidas Neverous. I guess you, you ran out of characters there. It takes a lot of yeah. a lot of letters. I'm not really a big Twitter guy. I just had it for years. I don't really like tweet a lot. I looked it up not once in a while, but the day the day I got there, I got some got some tweets about me, so it was it was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. What do your, your teammates call you never? Yeah, my teammates call me never. It was just easier. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Well, we appreciate your time and uh congratulations again and thanks for coming on. Thank you. Okay, so first African-born player, first Lithuanian-born player. Naturally, that got us wondering what will be the next country off of the big league board. And so for this, I went to Hans van Sluten, who is a database guy for baseball reference and is often very helpful as a research resource. And I asked him to send me a list of players in the minors who played in 2016 or 2017, some minor league seasons haven't started yet, who are from countries that have never had a big leaguer. So we've got a list here, and this is going to be pretty rough from a pronunciation perspective. Apologies to everyone listening who can pronounce these names better, but we will do our best. So 
We have Demi Oromoloye from Nigeria. We've got Esteban Floreal and Ramon Laguerre from Haiti. Fabian Vizcaino and Juan Montes from Guatemala. We have Rinku Singh, who was a cricket recruit and fellow pirate from India, although he is currently a free agent. And Yasuo Sano from Thailand. And four players from St. Martin. Two from the French half of St. Martin is Rana Wilson and Rene Leveret, and two from the Dutch half of St. Martin, Denzel Richard and Dudley Leonora. So that is a, a territory of both of those countries. So again, reading the options here, we have Nigeria, Haiti, Guatemala, India, St. Martin, both French and Dutch, and Thailand. And if you want to count China as well, there was one Chinese-born son of American missionaries, Harry Kingman, who was born in China, and he made the major leagues in 1914. He was a, a one-year big leaguer. If you want to go with a a player who was born in China and raised in China, we have Gui Yanshu, who is in the WBC this year and is also a minor leaguer in the Orioles system. So those are the options, at least among active players, for who could be the next to be their country's first big leaguer. So quite a rich tapestry. Yeah, and you know. It's really- you're talking about first player from a country, you get into thorny questions like, you know, litigating nationality. Like, you know, yes, right. Demi or Maloye was raised in Canada since he was, mm-hmm. I think, only a year old. So I guess what we're looking at is places where baseball might be new, where where teams are scouting. And I think that I don't know, you probably look to either Europe or someplace. You know, what's interesting about Haiti and St. Martin is or at least the French side of St. Martin, is that they're both on the other side of an island with a country where baseball is very popular. Like mm-hmm. The Dutch side of St. Martin is part of the former Netherlands Antilles with Aruba and Curacao, which are baseball crazy, and Haiti shares the, the island with the Dominican Republic. So you'd think that there would be at least some cultural exchange there where mm-hmm. you get a, a Haitian or St. Martinese player. Mm-hmm. Um, Floreal yeah. is, is like an actual prospect. I've heard uh, Eric Longenhagen, the Fangraphs prospect mm-hmm. uh, writer, talk about him a lot. So I think if I were going to bet on a country to get its first player to the big leagues, I'd bet on Haiti probably just because Floreal is, is like actually a guy. Mm-hmm. 19-year-old Yankees outfielder in A-ball. You'd think Israel would have someone on this list. Maybe that will be the next, at least, to have a, a minor leaguer. Yeah. Because they've, they've never had a big leaguer. I mean, they this was part of the coverage. They only had Shlomo Lippitz was the only mm-hmm. actual Israeli guy on the WBC team. But, you know, yeah. they, I mean, we sort of talked about this with Navaraskis, that you get baseball rolling. And this is sort of how it happened with soccer in the U.S. You, you see people playing it on the professionally on TV and think, oh, you know, kids think, oh, I could do that. And then 15 years later, you start getting actual professional prospects. So maybe mm-hmm. that happens. You know, maybe we set our clocks for 2032 and we get a, an influx of Israeli minor leaguers. Well, by then we'll have 12 man bullpens. So they'll, they better be relief pitchers. Know, we'll have 32 man bullpens on a 40 man <laughs> active roster. Good point. All right. So we will leave it there. We'll talk to you all on Thursday. <laughs>